All right, well, welcome everybody. Welcome back to Story Symbol Spirit, a podcast about making sense of scripture. My name is John McCambridge, and as always, I'm Jackie Mitchell. Hi, Jackie. You said your last hey. name right this time. That's I did, good. you know, always a struggle. You always say your maiden name. I do. Uh, we are joined today by a special guest. Yes. Hello. This is Sean Patterson. This is our first guest of the podcast. It's amazing. And Thank so, you. yeah. Quite Sean, an honor. You're, you're the inaugural guest. I this appreciate is, it. Yeah, you set the tone for any other guests of this, the show, so. No pressure. No pressure. Yeah, so, so Sean, <laughs> Sean is, a, is a member of our church here in Columbus, Ohio, 514 Church. He is a uh, Bible and theology nerd, mm-hmm. which makes him a kindred spirit to Jackie and myself. Every time we find somebody like Sean, we... We latch on because <laughs> not, not, not everybody likes to uh, That's right. get down into this stuff. But uh, um, we're going to talk today a little bit about apologetics. Yeah. And so Sean and I have talked about apologetics before. We're going to link in the show notes to a five-part, you know, six or seven hours worth of content that Sean mm-hmm. and I have covered in terms of all of your classic apologetics mm-hmm. arguments and, and, you know, why it's reasonable to believe in God. And we get into some of what we're going to get into today in that. So if you're interested in apologetics, you know, obviously this is a Bible podcast. And so that's not all that we're going to do here, but we will uh, get you guys some some information in terms of that. Now, before we get into some of the stuff, mm-hmm. and I'm going to let Sean introduce himself here in a second, mm-hmm. but we need to first talk about something much more important. Okay. Which is me. Oh, <laughs> perfect. Okay. Obviously. All right. And of course. So, right. I- Jackie, you had a story about someone at church and uh, uh, a nickname. Yes. That that is that apparently <laughs> is is going around behind the scenes. I'll tell the tale. I you know I was talking to a couple about our small groups ministry, and I, I'm on the small groups team here with John and Emma, another one of our coworkers. And so I was explaining, you know, you've met Emma. Um, I'm Jackie, and uh, John's also on the small groups team. And they were like, oh, I don't think I know John. And I was like, oh, you know, he's our associate pastor. You know, he's got a beard. You'd see him speak on a Sunday. And they were like, uh, the sweater guy. <laughs> and I was like, why? I don't, I'm like, try, I'm like, I don't, I guess. I mean, I don't know if it's the sweater guy. And they're like, yeah, he is. Look behind you. And they pointed and you were behind us talking to someone and you were in a sweater. Yeah. So I haven't really gotten a chance to get into this yet, <laughs> but is is it because I was wearing a sweater that day? I don't know. They they were new to the church. So maybe just in the past few weeks, you've worn I a like sweater. I don't wear sweaters that much. Well, now Sean, you how, either. How often do I wear sweaters? <laughs> I haven't noticed you wearing that many sweaters. <laughs> you, yeah, I know. To be the, yeah, the exactly. sweater. Well, I was exactly. I, in my defense, I was trying to defend you and say, no, I don't think you're the sweater guy. <laughs> but they turned, they were like, look behind you. And it was you and you were in a sweater. So I really couldn't even <laughs> Refute it because you know it's coincidental. It could be a lot worse. No, yeah, there's a lot worse nicknames. Lot worse nicknames <laughs> but than now I'm trying to figure guy. out how I respond to right. that. Right, you got to double down. I think is it that I stop wearing sweaters altogether, <laughs> right. or is it that like you, you buy wore, more? You wear like I, three sweaters at the same time. I become the sweater guy, <laughs> like multiple sweaters. I could wear a turtleneck under a crew neck. Mm. <laughs> exactly. Because exactly. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I just don't know if I like being referred to as that. So. I have to figure out how well, to play Well, you are this. already. It's the, the, You can't stop. The sweater guy. I don't. Yeah, yeah unless you never wear a sweater again. So from now on, it's going to be like, welcome everybody to the Story Symbol Spirit Podcast about making sense of scripture. I'm the sweater guy. I'm the sweater guy. <laughs> As always, joined by Jackie As always, I'm in Mitchell. a sweater. <laughs> I'm wearing a sweater. I'm not even wearing a sweater right now. We have, video, we have video evidence of well, this. Well, that's because I told you. 
That's yeah, why he didn't wear a sweater so today. He, he put his sweaters closet. away. He had like five sweaters lined up for the awesome. week and <laughs> put those away. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jackie could go on about this forever. She likes making fun of me. But, I think yeah. I just thought that was funny. And I couldn't even defend you. You were in a sweater. They were right. <laughs> <laughs> they were right. Oh, in that moment, they were They right. were right on. <laughs> All right, Sean. So before we get into this, why don't you give us a little bit about your background and, and when we kind of get into uh, apologetics, because, you know, what, what we're going to talk about today is... You know, even though this isn't the Apologetics podcast, it's a podcast where we're trying to get people to read the Bible, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're trying to show them a lens through which the Bible can make sense, and hopefully, takes away some of those roadblocks that so many people have when it comes to to uh, to, to reading the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. And so, in terms of apologetics, I think it is worth at least discussing the apologetics of the Bible. Right. Like, why do we think this thing is trustworthy? Yeah, absolutely. Why do we think that this is what we're supposed to have? Mm-hmm. You know, because we, Jackie and I have already talked a lot about how this comes through a historical process, mm. and inspiration is a process that happens between the Holy Spirit and people. Right. So it's th- there's a human element to this, and whenever there's a human element to it, there's there's the possibility of error or, you know, copying errors or... or um, power plays Mm -hmm. where, you know, we want this book in the Bible so that we can control people or, or whatever, you know, whatever it is that kind of goes out there into the, the, the popular imagination. And so, uh, Sean, why don't, why don't you give us a little bit about your background, who you are, why you're interested in apologetics, how you kind of came to, uh, you know, some of the knowledge and the wisdom that you have in this stuff. Sure. Um, well, I did not grow up in the church. Um, Hmm. God, religion, was never talked about at all growing up. Um, it, it just wasn't on the radar. So it wasn't a positive. It wasn't a negative. It just wasn't there. Um, by 11th grade, uh, I had somebody in my English class that invited me to a Bible study. And I decided to go for some reason. I don't know why. I just did. I was like, okay, sure. Why not? Um, and so when I was going, I just kept going because the people were really nice and I uh, didn't have a lot of friends growing up. So that kind of, I think, added to it. And it just seemed to make sense what they were talking about as we were going through different um, stories of the Bible, different things. And it wasn't until like four months later, um, January of 1982, to date me very, <laughs> very well, but um, when I finally actually heard like a traditional gospel message about accepting Jesus into your life and went, Oh, really? I, are you supposed to do that? I didn't know. You know, they're like, oh, they felt terrible that they hadn't, you know, preached that before. Um, so yeah, that's when I became a Christian, and ever since then, uh, you know, I was introduced to like the works of Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis, and I, I just, I always um, wanted to have everything make sense about this, and and it doesn't always make sense, but that was just always my approach. That was just who I was growing up. So. As I was going along, you know, obviously being introduced into this world of apologetics, I continued to study uh, and read. I, I've, even though I haven't gone to seminary per se, I have taken the equivalent of eight quarters of seminary level classes from different churches mm-hmm. that I've attended over the years. So I feel like I've got a pretty broad spectrum. And the nice thing, at least for me, looking at it, is I, I'm not beholden to any one particular. Um, way of thinking or one group, you know, whether it's Lutheran, Methodist, whoever, I'm not beholden to that. Like some people who have grown up in in that situation, um, they sometimes were just like, this is how you think about it and this is how you believe. I I was exposed to many different 
perspectives and different beliefs along the way from you know all different corners of of the Christian world, and always wanted to interact with them. So I I just fell in love with um, the whole apologetic uh, thing from probably from day one. Just you know, making sense of it, because the, the Bible did talk a lot about that. And obviously, that's a whole different conversation, uh, talking about how the Bible talks about apologetics. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's that's basically in a nutshell, um, you know, the, my story of where I've come from and why I'm really interested in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Sean, you, you've got a, uh, a very smooth podcasting voice. <laughs> you <laughs> do, you. yeah. I, radio hosting. I actually did go to school to um, learn how to be on the radio. No and, way. And I actually was on the radio yeah. here in town for a little while, but it was overnight. And uh-huh. wow, that's tough. And I was never going to get on uh, day shift. And they said, well, really, the way to succeed in this business is you're going to move around from city to city across the country. I was like, no, thanks. No. <laughs> so, yeah, I... I I did do a little bit of radio, so I, I do enjoy this. Yeah, it shows. Yeah, he he seems very comfortable. I know. He? This is so Although nice. Although he did get nervous when he saw that there was a camera here. So. Uh, yeah, well, you know. That's well, not radio. <laughs> I know. Or well, I'm nervous, too. I, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. I know. You were mad when we, when we decided. I, <laughs> I never want to look at a video of myself ever in my life, <laughs> yeah. if I could avoid it. Sure. Um, so, so Sean, you know, in, in my interactions with Sean here at this church, he, he's, been, he's been a huge help to me. Uh, in terms of, of thinking through some of the stuff, he's very mm-hmm. learned. He he has been exposed to uh, a lot of really great thinkers, and uh, he's a smart guy. So so he's able to to take that and synthesize it and and you know communicate it in an effective way. One of the people that you introduced me to in the in the realm of apologetics, which I think is kind of going to center our discussion today, mm-hmm. is uh, a guy named Jay Warner Wallace, mm-hmm. and he's been pretty influential on on your path, correct? Yeah, especially recently because I only discovered him like maybe five to seven years ago, something mm-hmm. like that. And um, yeah, I, his story is really interesting. So if you want, I can just jump right into his story. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, if, I, if it would mm-hmm. be helpful, I think let's just give like a really quick brief introduction to what apologetics is. Let's just yeah, define good, it good. so we're all on the same yeah. terms. So if you, Sean, want to take that. Oh, yeah. Just a broad, broad overview of apologetics for our listeners. Yeah, when we... Um, did our apologetics podcast with John. Uh, At the very beginning, there was a whole introductory. So if you want to hear that uh, a little more in depth, but I'll just give Mm -hmm. a nice little quick thing. Um, Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which basically means a reasoned defense. And it goes back to as far as like Plato, he had a work called Apology, Apologia. And that's where you see Socrates giving a defense for himself of why he was teaching what he was teaching you know, corrupting the youth and all that sort of thing that he was being accused of. So this uh, word actually appears in the Bible a few times. And one of the biggest Mm -hmm. places is in 1 Peter 3.15. And that that seems to be across the board, everybody's favorite apologetic verse. Uh, Primarily for me, because it also talks about um, doing it in a very reverential way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, too many people who get into either theology or apologetics want to be argumentative and uh, Mm -hmm. know-it-all. And man, they've totally missed the point of that scripture of you do it with reverence and respect. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're loving the person. And I know a lot of people maybe hear apologetics and don't equate it with loving the person, but I do. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, when Jesus says, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself, I think loving a person is in the same vein. Mm -hmm. You love everything about them. And that includes their mind and the way they think and the questions that they have. You don't dismiss it. You don't, you know, just say, well, you should pray about it or have more faith or whatever. No, you, you 
work through that with them because the beliefs uh, matter. And so for me, apologetics is helping your beliefs about who God is, who you are, um, that, that permeates your life because you will act on those things. So it's very yeah. practical. It's not just uh, an academic access, uh, um, exercise. You know, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people want to keep it in that realm. And I've been trying to make it more holistic, more of a, it's about the person and it's about loving the person. So mm -hmm. to me, that's what apologetics really should be all about. And we, and we do this in all kinds of areas of our life, right? Mm -hmm. um, I always talk about how, you know, you want to argue about sports or something. Right. And what you do to prove your side of the argument <laughs> or whatever is you, you give an apologia right. about why LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan or, or, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Jackie calls me the sweater guy, <laughs> and I give a reasoned yes. defense as to why that may or may not be true, right? Right. right? right now I'm saying that's not true, so I might say, well, I mean, how often do I wear sweaters? You know, I've only worn sweaters, you know, X amount of times or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you start to amass evidence. This is actually the way that we communicate yeah. with yeah. each other and the way that we talk about normal things. Right. And so one of the things that you and I talk about a lot, Sean, is that if we do that about who's the best basketball player, then we should be able to at least have, you know, some kind of ability to do that about what we are saying is the most important right. thing in the world, which is our faith, why mm -hmm. we believe what we believe. And that's what that's what Peter's commanding his people to do. Exactly. To be ready to do that mm -hmm. when, when the opportunity arises. Yeah. I think sometimes we have a, a misconstrued idea of what faith means, mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. not uninformed. And you've talked about, right. you know, you've done a class on, you know, apologetics, faith is not blind. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that, you know, just because we're saying, you know, we have faith doesn't mean that we can't right. give an answer for why we have faith. And right. so I think that's what apologetics in mm -hmm. the, the purest sense aims to do. Right. right. And, and so that's what we're going to do today about the Bible. You know, why is it that we believe that this document we have that we claim is inspired by God, why do we believe that that's the document we're supposed to have? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How, how do we know that it hasn't been corrupted by, mm -hmm. by human minds or human intentions or, or, or whatever? Um, and so uh, one of the reasons that I like Jay Warner Wallace and what you've brought to the table with that is because he goes about it in a very systematic way mm -hmm. and in a way that, you know, because of his background, which I want you to explain, right. helps us understand it from like a perspective that a lot of us know, basically because people are familiar with like true crime podcasts mm -hmm. and TV shows and mm -hmm. Law and & Order and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. A lot of people love that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah he, he will definitely appeal to a broad range of people who may not necessarily be interested in this sort of a thing, but mm -hmm. he kind of brings it into the everyman kind of a circle. Um, you know, he, he grew up an atheist. He had no belief in, in God at all. They, you know, he did not go to church. He was a cop in, in L.A. And one of his uh, stories that he says is, I would regularly arrest people, and nine times out of ten, they would say they were Christians. And he's like, what? <laughs> That's, <laughs> that made no sense to him. And he's like, yeah, right, okay, I, I want nothing to do with this. But as you get married and you start having kids, uh, as many of us do, he realized that his wife was looking for a way to kind of solidify the family and maybe to give kids, um, their kids, some values. And while his dad was also an atheist, uh, his dad then remarried into the Mormon faith, uh, but he still remained an atheist So because he felt like ethics and morality was still a good thing and, hey, they've got some good morality, whatever, that's fine. That was his dad's take on it. So he was having a similar sort of you know thought process going into this. So he thought, well, all right, fine, we'll go to a church, we'll see what we can do, and you know maybe start learning about this. 
his impression of the Bible was that it was just going to have a bunch of sayings in it, like just some mm. wisdom sayings. Um, and he was really surprised when the preacher not only said Jesus was the smartest man alive, but he's also responsible for most of Western civilization of like how we think about things and what we value. And, and then as he was like, come on, really? And he went home and he started reading this Bible and he saw things like eyewitness testimony and uh, other things along those lines of, you know, they were there, they handled taste touched, you know, that the, they were, there to witness it. And he's like, hang on, hang on. I'm a cop. I know how to determine if you are a valid eyewitness or not. Hmm. And so he went through this whole thing and he eventually became a cold case detective after he was just a, a standard cop for a while. And the cold case um, modus operandi, for lack of better words uh, to explain it, he said he actually saw similarities between trying to investigate the claims of the Bible and what he did as a cold case detective. Hmm. So that yeah, set him on a whole, you, uh, huge journey. You, when, what do you call somebody who would be interviewed by a cold case detective because that person was there at the scene? What would you call that person? An eyewitness. A witness, right? Yeah, a witness, yeah. And so the, the charge to the church was to go be witnesses. Right. Which assumes that there's some, that, that these, these people saw. And, and that's, mm -hmm. you know, First John, that, that which we have seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, touched with our hands. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what John, the apostle, is claiming... To be doing right, and so Jay Warner Wallace is kind of like, well, I know how to do this. Yep, and so he started to really like dive into that, and that's kind of where his you know career and apologetics kind of kind of, you know you know really really started. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you know, Sean, I think it would be helpful if you walked us through, you know, from his perspective and what you've learned from him. What are the ways that you can test an eyewitness? Right. Yeah. He he was really uh, serious about this. So when he was looking at the New Testament documents in particular, and this is where he started. So this is a great place to, to start for understanding the Bible, going with somebody who basically was a skeptic. And to his own credit, he says, even after a Christian becoming a Christian, he says, that's still something the Lord's working on him, you know, in his life of being a little too cynical. But he said, it's actually good because he um, he's not just going to be gullible and just believe anything. He's really going to put it through the ringer. And that's what I've really appreciated about his ministry, because I had an idea that, um, and not just with the Bible, but with all the stuff that we've talked about in apologetics, that evidence was always seen from the skeptic viewpoint as having to be scientific. And he's like, no, there's, there's other evidence, you know, and, and it's in the courtroom. And I, and I knew that, but the way he put it together mm -hmm. and the way he framed it and then gave it some more, I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense. Mm -hmm. I really had no way to know how to actually communicate it to people. Just on some level made sense to me, but what he did was he said, all right, there's this thing called forensic statement analysis. So that's something that he started with when he looked at the gospels, because what that does in his line of work um, is that he will have a suspect come in and give him a sheet of paper. And it usually has 24 lines on it. And, they, and he will give it to him and say, write everything you did on this day that we think that this crime was committed. And for every hour, you just write down what you did. You don't go on the back and you don't go to the next line. As much as you can, just fill up each line. And if, you know, eight of them hopefully are sleep because we think you should be sleeping. But they don't even say that because some people <laughs> won't even put that down there. And like, oh, you have 24 hours? I mean, so what, what he was able to do then with this 
training and forensic statement analysis is look at how they described what they did during the day, especially around the time that the crime was committed. Mm. And if they were guilty, things would get weird in their description. Like they, they would start contracting or expanding time or getting way too specific or way too vague and, uh, as opposed to what they were talking about through the rest of the day. And mm-hmm. almost without fail, they could tell just by how they communicated by writing things down if they were guilty or not. Mm. And so he decided to apply the same principle to then the New Testament. So he's like, I can tell if you're going to be an eyewitness, this is one of the things that we need to make a determination is, um, what are you saying? What are you not saying? What could you have said instead yeah. of this? And he went through and, you know, as we'll see, uh, by the time he was done, he was convinced that these guys actually were mm-hmm. eyewitnesses. Mm. So in terms of that, that forensic statement analysis, what are, the, what are the questions that he tries to answer to determine if somebody's a, an eyewitness? Okay, yeah. So he's got four uh, distinct things that, well, pretty much any court of law will have that they will give jury instruction. So if you've ever done jury duty, you may have heard this, that there are four criteria to determine whether or not somebody was an eyewitness or not. And that is that um, were they truly present in order to see what they claimed that mm-hmm. they saw? Okay. Um, can the testimony be corroborated by other forms of evidence, both internal and external? Uh, have they been honest and accurate over time? Has their story changed at all? Mm. And are they free of any biases or prejudices that uh, might cause them to lie? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he will say regularly that jurors are instructed to um, keep those in mind for any witness that, that gets put on the stand and determine their credibility. doesn't matter if you don't like the way they look mm. or if they, you know, beady eyes or whatever, you know, none of that. It, it, the stereotypical <laughs> stuff, you think, oh, I don't know if I trust him. He wears sweaters. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I, mean well, I, I was thinking. I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with this because <laughs> right. I, uh, when I get called for jury duty, like a good citizen, I go, Jackie usually skips. Ah. She, she tries to find <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> I've never been on jury duty, but it's, a, I would say, a dream of mine. It just sounds a so fun. I, that's not the right word for it, but like just, <laughs> it sounds cool. I don't know. It just seems Mm -hmm. like I just want to do it. I Mm -hmm. hope they call me. I'm excited. (laughs) So so we've got, were they really present? Right. Can their testimony be corroborated? Mm -hmm. Has the story changed over time? Right. And are they free of prejudice that might, you know, color the story in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So he used this specifically with the the gospel accounts and and the book of Acts, Mm -hmm. right? Because those are kind of the narratives of of what claimed to be the history of the life of of Jesus. Right. And so... um, yeah, what, what, what did he find when he, when he dove into that? Well, yeah, when he started, uh, like, at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, like, the first four verses, just things just jumped out at him, and he was like, whoa, this is really, really cool. Uh, and I'll just read them real quick. Um, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, Mm. most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Mm. So you heard the words. You could tell. I I don't need to to point them out. And he's like, wait a minute. So Luke, first of all, is not an eyewitness, but he's a detective. He goes, just like me. So mm-hmm. this guy is digging up all of the, the evidence. He's going around and he's carefully investigating everything. And he's interviewing people. And he's like, that's what I do. Yeah. 
Um, and that was the one of the similarities between mm-hmm. uh, his cold case and doing this. You know, think about it. It's an event. A cold case is something that, say, it's generally a murder that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago. Sure. But it's gone cold because they can never solve it. So you got an event in the distant past. There are no living eyewitnesses. There's little to no forensic evidence. And you've got some, maybe some uh, circumstantial evidence. And he always says circumstantial evidence is not bad. He's actually has lots of cases that were solved with just yeah. circumstantial evidence because <laughs> almost all evidence is circumstantial. Cause it's either yeah. direct or indirect. And he says, that's <laughs> because you hardly ever have just direct evidence. Right, so, right, um, right. so for him, that was like thing, the, the key right there. So when he saw that in Luke, he's like, okay, that was his gospel. He wrote acts, which is church history, right? So it's the very first thing. So for him, he's like, okay, let's go through this and see not only what was said, but what was not said. And I think that that is really important that that stuck out to him. And he, he pulls some stuff out. I'm like, I have read these passages for how many years now? Mm-hmm. And I never saw that. It's amazing what he mm-hmm. pulled out. And he was just like, look, look at this. I'm like, whoa. So um, yeah, he's he's been really, really good. So what he said that, that we needed to do is... Um, we, we need to start looking at the dates of all the, the Gospels as well as the New, the New Testament. And so he said, so in dating these writings, what we have to do then is look at historical events and what happened when, and since Acts is that. Um, and th- this, is, this is important because mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a, a strand of thought at the, at the current moment in like biblical scholarship or mm-hmm. critical scholarship that tries to date this stuff really late. Oh yeah, tries to date the gospel. I mean, some mm-hmm. of them, you, that, like even people, mm-hmm. they can't date them very late. Right. But some, you know, some like there's theories out there that like Acts was mm-hmm. written in like the 200s. Right. Or, or at the end of the first century, and, yeah. and you know, uh, that that the Gospel of John was written really late. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, basically, you know, my understanding from this stuff is that that that's actually a, a not a very good way to read this stuff because mm-hmm. of what you're going to talk about. Right. There were significant historical events mm-hmm. that were happening right. that can help paint the picture, mm-hmm. it, depending on whether they were talked about, mm-hmm. how they were talked about, right. or how they were omitted. Right. Mm. Uh, that can help us understand the, the dating of these mm-hmm. things. And, and so, so where, did, where did that lead him? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say real quick that as far as the uh, biases against early dating, the reasons that were generally given for late dating was because they contained prophecies that quote unquote came true and they had miracles. That's it. Yeah, those are the two main things. Which is circular, which, circular logic, yeah, right? It's like, okay, well, but if God exists, then those things can happen. And you're assuming <laughs> based on that, that the, that naturalism is all there is and there is no God. And so therefore those things can't happen. So that's why we have to date them this way. It's like, no, because yeah, the, like the line that. of argument is usually like, okay, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, that doesn't happen, so that must be legendary material. Right. Legends happen over time. Right. Therefore, right. Gotcha. Th- this has to be dated late. And that's usually hmm. why. So that, that's right. good to understand why uh, they, they do that, but then counter that with what J. Werner Wallace says uh, and his reasoning. So, you know, he said that... Um, the, the most, well, I mean, we can, we'll talk about manuscripts later. I, I was going to bring that up, but I thought, nah, we'll, we'll just look at the events. Um, so when you look through Acts, there are a couple of key historical events that are mentioned by Luke. So you have, um, and, and in the ancient world, deaths are more important than births. 
Okay. So that's why these are, are mentioned. So you've mm-hmm. got uh, the death of um, John, not John. Uh, the I forget what he, I should have written it down. <laughs> I thought I did, but John I, Mark. But, yeah, John Mark. Yeah, he he died, and then the death of Stephen. Stephen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have both of those guys in there now. We know historically that James, the brother of Jesus, died in 61 or 62 AD, mm-hmm. okay. not mentioned in Acts. Mm-hmm. He was thrown from the temple roof because um, the uh, supposed uh, chief priests and elders thought that he was blaspheming, you know, that, that mm-hmm. the, him preaching Jesus this way. So we know that that's, when, that's one of the first anchor points is in 61 or 62 AD, James died. Not, not mentioned, mentioned. Not mentioned in Acts. And James, but James is talked about in Acts. Right. So we yeah. would have to assume that, you know, if they're mentioning Stephen's death, mm-hmm. if they're mentioning other deaths, right. and James is a central figure in Acts, that yep. if he died, right. and, and this was written later, this yeah. would certainly be in it. You would think so. Um, so then another thing, it was huge in 19... Or 1964, yeah. In 64 <laughs> in AD. In 64, 64 AD. <laughs> um, Nero was persecuting Christians so much so that he was in, a, in PG warning, impaling them and lighting, lighting them on fire in mm-hmm. his garden. Mm-hmm. That's serious persecution. That's not mentioned in Acts. Mm. You would think that that would be mentioned. And that, event, Yeah, right, right. I, I mean, that, that's a huge event, event in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and he lived, Nero, from 37 to 68, and he ruled from 54 to 68. Now, Nero is mentioned uh, in if I'm not mistaken, but this persecution is not, uh, not at all. Um, and the persecution, I, th- I believe, happened towards the end of his yes, mm-hmm. his yeah. reign. Yeah, and he basically um, destroyed the city and blamed it on the Christians. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, uh, and then you have both Paul and Peter dying in, in kind of the mid to late 60s, so 64 to 67, somewhere in there. They're not 100% clear on exactly when. You'll, you'll hear different scholars say, but... That's generally considered the time frame, mm-hmm. both Paul and Peter dying, because Acts ends with Paul basically awaiting trial, yeah. you know, to go to Rome. No mention of his death. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the and last two, which I think are probably... And Peter, Peter and James were, were considered pillars of the oh, church, absolutely. Too, right? I mean, absolutely. They're, they're kind of the guys in Jerusalem. Yes. Yeah. So... Yeah, you, you would think that that would be, mm-hmm. you know, monumental because we have stories of Peter being in jail and then being freed and the believers thinking that when Peter showed up at the door that it was just his angel, his right. ghost, you know, right. Yeah, uh, right. like it says in Acts. So um, they mention all of that. You would think, oh, yeah, if, if he actually died and these guys didn't just die, they, you know, like natural causes. Right. They were all martyred. Right. That was huge. Um impact to the church that that would have been mentioned, should have been mentioned, but it was not. Then finally, we have the siege by Rome on Jerusalem from 67 to 70 AD, where they literally just said, I've had enough of you. Rome's like, we're cutting you off. They isolated them. Things got so bad that they just couldn't leave the city. And again, warning, (laughs) they've reverted to cannibalism. I mean, Mm -hmm. it got that bad. And None of that is mentioned. And then, of course, in 70 AD, you got the temple destruction by Mm -hmm. Rome. Temples totally destroyed. That is the central part of their life. They go and live and breathe, you know, uh, Jerusalem, 
even though the church didn't necessarily, you know, uh, affiliate themselves with the temple as much, still that was a huge monumental thing. Yeah, the early uh, Christians were Jewish, right. you know, they unless they were been. Gentile, they they mm-hmm. had been raised in that faith, and so right. that still would have been I, mm-hmm. important enough to mention. Right. I mean, the right. story the stories in Acts say that they went to the temple. Yeah, to, to worship. To, right? Yeah, to right. worship. I mean, at, yeah. least, at least until until yes. towards the end when there was some some strife. But right. Um, but yeah, that that was you know the destruction of the temple for these people in this region, for for you know the the people of the historic Israel. That right. was like the preeminent event in the first century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is not mentioned. Nope. In any of the gospels, mm-hmm. and it is not mentioned in Acts. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons. That people date, try to date this stuff late, kind of using that circular logic we talked about earlier, is because Jesus predicted it would happen. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Which, as Christians, makes sense. Yeah. But right. I think for for some skeptics, that just kind of leads to that circular. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't predict those kinds of things. So right. the Gospels must have been written after the destruction mm-hmm. of the temple. Right. Because that's just like kind of the way that it has to be. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So those are six huge historical. Um, events that mm-hmm. was not recorded in Acts at all. So mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you conclude by that? I mean, it's, is it a slam dunk? No, but it's very compelling evidence. And that's what Jay Warner Wallace would always say. Look, it, it's a, um, you build a case, you build a cumulative case, and a lot of times it's a death by a thousand paper cuts. Mm-hmm. He said that it, it, there, you know, people always try to say, well, what's the one slam dunk argument that proves all of this? There isn't. Yeah. And it's all just a, a, a cumulative. But at a certain point, you just kind of have to go, uh, how far are we going to stretch credulity here? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, we, we really have to do some serious mental gymnastics to make this not seem plausible. But, and, and the idea that, that these guys would purposely leave that stuff out mm-hmm. so that, you know, thousands of years later, people might right. date it earlier. Like, that's not the way no. that people do this right. stuff. No, I they mean, weren't that, thinking that. That's kind <laughs> of... That, but that is, that is actually what the... the Typically, like the mm-hmm. skeptical view will say, mm-hmm. that's kind of what they're claiming happened. Right. That that they foresaw that you know they should that that they should you know try to tell these stories in a way that right. dated them early. But mm-hmm. that's not that's not how it right. works in real time, right? Mm-hmm. That's a historical view, right? That we look back on now. But mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's it's silly because um, you know even even. Um, the the late dating of the gospels other than john mm-hmm. which i've seen some crazy dates that critical right. scholars try to put on john right but you know the the uh, the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke mm-hmm. i mean even the late dates aren't that late right so yeah they're yeah. not so wallace basically says well what can we conclude from this mm-hmm. well if the earliest event that's not recorded is 61 or 62 ad then we can pretty confidently say that Acts was written in as, as late as 60. And if that's the case, then his gospel could have been 55, mm-hmm. 53. Mm-hmm. You know, that seems reasonable given the historical context. So, you know, then he points out some other things that, that are interesting that Paul mentions in his writings that are accepted as you know, clearly, like, 1 Corinthians was written in 55. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all skeptical scholars will say, yep, this is one of Paul's, um, and it was written in 55. There's no doubt about that. And in there, Paul does quote something from Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we know it was around at at least 55. It would seem to be, yeah. That, that seems like a, pretty... The worker deserves his wages. Correct. 
Yeah, it's in, it's in. We think first, of it as an Old Testament allusion, maybe, but it's yeah, not, right. It's from right. Luke. It, it's it's in First uh, Corinthians eleven mm-hmm. uh, twenty three through twenty six. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, "For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which uh, is for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Do this in remembrance of me.' In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood." And so, yeah, you're right. I, that's actually the that's uh, Timothy. first Timothy. Yeah. yeah, the one I'm thinking of is this one that because it's the Timothy one. Some of the the scholars will go, well, I don't know if Timothy's really yeah, it's one of Paul's. Authorship, yeah, yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. that is because in Timothy, you're right. Uh, he quotes um, in chapter five. He quotes Deuteronomy and Luke mm-hmm. and puts them together. And he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Which is Deuteronomy. And then the laborer is worthy of his wages, which is Luke. Which 10. is Luke. Hmm. Like they're both scripture. Right. Hmm. And so he puts them yeah. right together. Right. And then, but the one that's not disputed in First Corinthians, do this in remembrance of me. You know, when he says that, the only place where Jesus says that at the Last Supper is in Luke. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So what does this say then if, if we have now some sort of an idea, a credible idea of when Luke was written around maybe 55 mm-hmm. AD, what does that say about the credibility of you know the scripture itself? How does that mm-hmm. help us understand if that's a reliable witness then? What does he say about that? Um, I don't think he goes into that specific, sure. but I think my conclusion from it is, is if Luke is doing all of this investigating, like he says at the beginning of his gospel, yeah. and he goes back and checks up on everything that's already been taught to Theophilus, because he said, I just want to make sure that you know that what you've already been taught, you can rely right. on. I'm going back and doing all this. So it would presume that Mark and Matthew would already have been written, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. probably right, in right. the 40s. Right. So the closer we get to the time of Jesus, the less likely there's any legendary development to happen It's not all. been enough time for mm-hmm. that to develop. Nope, not right. at all. Because there's still people alive going, what are you talking about? Yeah, that, I was there. It didn't happen that way. Sure. And, and that's what Paul, I mean, when mm-hmm. Paul starts to talk about all the people that Jesus appeared to, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. basically challenging them to say like, hey, yeah, go go and ask them. Right. You know, yeah. like he said, uh, this guy, this you know, he says Peter and John mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the brothers, and then like 500 other people. Right. So you, you can go, you can go and ask if you want. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's interesting is because, like you said, a lot of a lot of scholars, like s- some of the Pauline letters, even mm-hmm. skeptical scholars, they they date them very early, right? Because there's just really no evidence that that they're not. They're <laughs> like, name dropping so many people they know <laughs> right, of the time right, period. Right, yeah. Right, right. yeah, yeah. So so um, so relatively, you know, early dating of of the the Gospels, you know, within a few decades, mm-hmm. um, and then. Uh, in terms of the four criteria for testing mm-hmm. the eyewitnesses, mm-hmm. because these are either uh, direct eyewitness accounts right. by the writers of these gospels, like Matthew mm-hmm. and um, and John, or they're accounts from eyewitnesses, right? right? Like historically speaking, Mark mm-hmm. is the account of Peter's, you know, it's kind of the, the, mm-hmm. the culmination of Peter's account of the right. life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his first his first test of the eyewitnesses is were they there? Right. And so what are, what are his conclusions from that? I think you can say they were. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it seems pretty pretty hard to argue against that with all of this evidence. Uh, and it's and it's great because he just does it historically. He doesn't do it like uh, you know in, in kind of a 
I don't want to, you know, disparage anybody, but new agey way or whatever kind of, um, really lame kind of way. It's, it's, these are just hard facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the great thing about him being, you know, an ex cop. He's like, look, I, I don't take any gruff from anybody. I, I, I just, I blow all that away because I have to solve these things. Right. Yeah. And he solved a lot of cases. If any of you are interested, I think a lot of his, um, uh, some of his cases were on, um, Dateline. So oh, if you want to look up old Datelines mm. for J. Warner Wallace, he'll talk about it. And some of the stuff that he talks about here using to, you know, the methodology using to um, determine the validity of the Gospels, he used, you can see it, it, you know, especially like the forensic statement analysis. He did that with one guy um, who said some things and he's like, why would you say that instead of this? Mm. Nobody caught it for like 30 years or whatever. Mm. And just using like one statement that... He, he just, you know, said in such a way that he was like, that makes no sense. Why would you say it like that? Mm-hmm. Turns out this guy was guilty after all. Yeah. And so he started this investigation, you know, into the validity of scripture as an atheist, correct? So this isn't mm-hmm. some, right. you know, this isn't his, you know, his his goal is mm-hmm. not to prove mm-hmm. what he already believes, right? It's He's correct. investigating for himself to find out the truth. Mm-hmm. And correct. So. Yeah, exactly. And that's T.S. Lewis's story too. Yeah. yeah. And it took him a while and it got to the point where he said, okay, hang on. I've got so much evidence to believe. I, I, if I had this kind of evidence for any case, mm. I'd convict this guy. Mm. What, what's going on here? Why am I still resistant? And he realized that his problem was that his culture that he was brought up in was naturalism. Naturalistic right. things are supernatural things just don't exist. They mm. can't happen because they don't exist. He realized that roadblock was there in his mind. And he's like, what happens if I just take that out of the way? Yeah. Take that assumption out of the way and just say, okay, because I've got all this evidence. What if, and he said, okay, then when that happened, he's like, I, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, and, mm. that, and he had yeah. to kind of come to the conclusion of, man, this, this is true. And he, he'll say regularly, this doesn't work for me in the sense that a lot of people say it works for them. Right. Well, whatever works for you, just do it. He's like, it doesn't because I'm selfish. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do my things. And Jesus is regularly saying, I want you to do something completely different. He's like, mm. oh, okay, but I love you, so I'm going to do it. Yeah, so so we, we call it the methodology we're using to read through the Bible, uh, story, symbol, spirit. And the spirit part is is exactly that, that mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. bring a naturalistic assumption that it's there's no such thing as what naturalism would call supernatural right. events or some, you know, miraculous events, which right. I actually quibble with those words because of my Christian worldview. Right. But if you just say that stuff's impossible, then you're not you're not going to right. believe the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it doesn't matter if you investigate it or if you have evidence or right. whatever. Right. Like that's just a presupposition yep. that from the start excludes much of what the mm-hmm. scriptures record. Right. Yep. And at some point you have to, if if the historicity of the Bible is being proven true, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then what's said in it has to be considered. And so right, the only right. thing left is to say, well, maybe this is true then. Right. Yeah. And, and that's where I think a lot of people, C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. Strobel, I, I mm-hmm. mean, lots of these guys that right, end yeah. up, you know, set out to to prove the Bible wrong, right. end up saying, <laughs> this is undeniable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So were they there? Seems mm-hmm. like yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least, you know, we have good evidence right. that, that they were there. Yeah. It's very reasonable to assume that the people who claim to be eyewitnesses mm-hmm. were there. If you're interested... Uh, in in a little bit more of a scholarly take, this is a difficult read, uh, but Richard Bauckham mm, wrote mm-hmm. a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, I think. Correct. Where he goes into lots of extra-biblical material about the way that 
biographical accounts mm-hmm. were written and maps the gospels onto that and shows mm-hmm. that no this is you know ancient biography right this is what they're claiming to do mm-hmm. is they're claiming to write a biography mm-hmm. they're not claiming to write some kind of spiritual legend right they're 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 claiming mm-hmm. that they're writing a biography uh, and so that, that that's Richard Bauckham. he's done mm-hmm. a lot of uh, mm-hmm. amazing work on that so so were they there that, that's the number one test of the witnesses and uh, seems seems like there's there's very good evidence that that they were they were eyewitness <laughs> Uh, and, and that the testimony is eyewitness testimony. The second one is, can the testimony be corroborated by other sources? Right. And so I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you get into this. Um, but basically, another way to frame that question is like, what would we know about Jesus mm-hmm. and these events if there was no Bible? Right. Mm. So what would we know outside of the Bible about Jesus and these events? Yeah. One one of the things that he did um, was to look both internally and externally. We can do the internal a little bit later, but this is the external evidence for non-biblical eyewitnesses. So he looks at several different historians and wants to see what did somebody have to say about Jesus, the Christian movement, and all that outside of the Bible. So he goes through like Josephus and a bunch of others, and we'll, we can look at some of these depending on you know how much time we want to spend on it. Um, you know, Josephus was called, uh, you know, said that there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good. He was known to be virtuous. Um, Thallus, who lived in the first century, he was a Samaritan historian. He said that uh, on the whole world, there pressed the most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake. In many places in Judea and other districts were thrown mm-hmm. down. Um, so he was recounting the day of, of the crucifixion. Uh, Tacitus, uh, who was also um, late first century, early second century historian, he said that um, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but Mm -hmm. even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So, uh, you know, clearly he's not happy with, with this. Um, but but he's he's affirming the crucifixion. But he is affirming yeah. it. Mm. They said that this this did happen. Um, I may butcher this poor guy's name, Mara Bar Seraphon. Uh, he lived around 70 A.D. He was a Syrian philosopher, and mm. at that time is when he wrote, um, "What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished, uh, and nor did their wise king die for good." He lived on in the teaching which he had given. So he has a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, input there. Uh, another guy who I'm not sure how, <laughs> I think his name is Feljon, F-P-H-E-L-G-O-N, Felgon. Uh, he was also a historian, and he said that um, in, the thir- was in the 13th or 14th book of his Chronicles, not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, although falling into confusion about some things uh, which refer to Peter as they refer to Jesus, uh, but also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. He was talking about predictive prophecy um, and divine foreknowledge that that was going on. He says, and with regard to the eclipse in the time of uh, Tiberius, 
Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appears to have been crucified and with the great earthquakes which then took place. Um, he mentions that as well. So what can we know? Basically, uh, Wallace distills all of this down into 13 main points that if we didn't have the Bible at all, and we just relied on these external sources, we would know that he lived in Judea. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one Okay. before you get into oh, this. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, the first one is that he existed. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. good. Which, yeah. which serious yeah. scholars yeah. don't dispute, but people mm-hmm. who are, who are unaware of the scholarship, you know, if you just take a skeptical right. view of it all, it's yes. kind of like, did this was this guy even yeah. real? Right. And widely attested to outside mm-hmm. the Bible that there was a guy named Jesus. Right. That exactly. took part in what was being claimed yes. throughout this. Right. So, so he existed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go on. Go on. Sure. Uh, lived in Judea. Lived in Judea. Okay. Which is he, what the scriptures claim. He was a virtuous man. He had wondrous power. Hmm. He could predict the future. Hmm. He was considered to be a wise king of the Jews. He was accused by Jewish leaders. He was crucified under Pilate. There was darkness and an earthquake at the time of his crucifixion. He reportedly rose from the dead. Obviously, they don't believe that, but that was the report, and they cooperate that report that they that's what they claim. This is what the people are believing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He was believed by many to be the Jewish Messiah. He was called the Christ, and his followers were later called Christians, which was actually a derogatory term, not, mm-hmm. a, not a nice term at all. Uh, and then finally, a superstition, in quotes, spread throughout the Roman Empire regarding all of this uh, raising from the dead. Yeah. Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And also, I see some other stuff in there, too. Like, um, I believe that Josephus writes about James, Jesus' mm-hmm. brother. Mm-hmm. And so not only does Jesus exist, but that family that the Scriptures claim that he's from right. is real. And then, you know, the interesting thing in there, and mm-hmm. this is what, when I did the apologetics class and I talked about this, people made me send them um, my sources. Okay. Because they, they these extra biblical material, they talk about the eclipse and the earthquake mm-hmm. that's reported in the gospel exactly. when he was crucified. Yeah. Right. And so, right. <laughs> you know, that, that that's, uh, mm-hmm. people were like, people were like, you know, I believe in Jesus, I believe in all this stuff, but that kind of stuff seems legendary to me. Right. Yeah. And so I said, one of the things we know without the Bible is that is that mm-hmm. there was this earthquake <laughs> and this eclipse that happened at this time. And and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Um, that's one that that will make people kind of like do a double take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So, so all of that you know without having the Bible in front of you. That's from extra wow. biblical, often hostile. Yes. You know, like Josephus yeah. was no fan of the Christians. No. Uh, and so, and neither was like Tacitus. He was talking about all the evil that happened, right? You know, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and 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 these silly superstitions that mm-hmm. arise. And so, these are people who are not sympathetic to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. It's their historical accounts mm-hmm. that are non-biblical. Right. And from that information, you can gain all that yeah. stuff that you just mm-hmm. talked about. You know, I, I think it's interesting. I think sometimes when you talk about like the historicity of like when Jesus came down to earth, people say, "Man, I wish he came down to earth." Like later in time because mm-hmm. we'd have a lot of evidence for him. But I actually right. think we've got lots <laughs> now. And, yeah. you know, the, the Roman Empire was very advanced and, and writing mm-hmm. was, you know, very common. I mean, we've got philosophers, scholars, historians mm-hmm. at this time, doctors that are all investigating these claims mm-hmm. that, you know, sometimes we discredit the time period and make believe that maybe, you know, this was a, a, a people or a time period that you know, was dumb and didn't value evidence, but it's very clear that the Mm -hmm. historical evidence was very valuable to Mm -hmm. the time period. Absolutely. So were, so were they there? Right. seems like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The second one, uh, is there, you know, uh, corroboration by Mm -hmm. outside sources? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It seems like, yes. Yes. 
And so then the third one, I believe, is did the story stay consistent over time? Right. 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 Which, mm. uh, whenever you listen to true crime podcasts, mm -hmm. as soon as the, the witnesses or the people that they're trying to paint as potential suspects, as soon as they start to give some change in their stories, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we instinctively yes. say they're lying. Right. Right. So, Absolutely. so the, so the idea that, so that would be a good, you know, if, if this was made up by mm -hmm. the apostles of the early mm -hmm. church and they were creating this material knowing that it wasn't true, right. then you'd probably have some pretty good evidence in terms of the story changing. Mm -hmm. so, so what do we find when we look into that? Well, yeah, he calls this uh, the chain of custody. That's mm. part of his uh, work in cold case. So he said, I have to look at the evidence that was recorded initially, and so he has to go through, and some of these guys were totally disorganized, and he has to go you know, <laughs> reorganize, highlight stuff, put things in like chronological order, see what evidence is still there. Um, and then as the trial was going on, clearly the, the officers still have to make more notes. There's maybe court um, uh, notes and things like that that he has to assemble. And he can take a look and see, all right, I still have, like, he uses uh, a shell casing from a gun as, as one of his points. And he can see, like, in the original photos, if if the, you know, they did their job correctly back then, uh, take a photo of everything, you know, say in one case, he's like, okay, there's a nick right here by the shell casing number. And I've got it, and it's still there. I can see that nothing has changed. Nobody swapped out the shell for a different mm -hmm. shell, you know, trying yeah. to cover up evidence or whatever. So he said that this chain of custody, um, did the police officer change their story? Did the criminal or, you know, suspect or whatever change their story uh, as they're going along? All those little things mm -hmm. he's looking at and trying to see uh, as he's working these cold cases, has any of this ever changed at all? So mm. he said it's relatively easy to do. He said what... What we can do is we can look at, say, some of the major disciples of Jesus and who did they disciple. And mm -hmm. we have writings from them and how far out can we get. And for him, uh, the, the benchmark was 360 or 350 AD because that's the first time we have the complete New Testament uh, in, in documents you know, bound together. But prior to all that, we have uh, partial either like just one book complete or maybe some fragments uh, and all yeah, that. So, but as so far as... Uh, that was the first codex that we yeah, have, right? Right. It's called the yeah. codex, codex Synapticus? Synapticus, because it was found near, near Mount Sinai. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, exactly. so, so just for people who might not be familiar with that terminology, codex is what you and I think of as a book. Right. So as opposed to a scroll mm -hmm. or something like that, mm -hmm. codex is a book that's kind of bound together right. that you can turn its right. pages. And so the first codex, the first, like what you and I would think of as the Bible right. that we have is from the 300s. Yeah, mid three, like 350, 360, and it matches exactly what we have today. So his thought is, okay, we can take a look at the story from back then and trace it right up to 360. And what did all the disciples of the disciples of the disciples <laughs> Did they ever change their story? And the mm -hmm. short answer is no. Mm. You know, because he gives a lot of examples. He goes through like John's disciples, Ignatius, Polycarp. Polycarp. Uh, yeah. And then who did they teach? Ignatius and Polycarp taught Irenaeus. Um, Papias and, was in there somewhere. Yeah. Man, you know, they just don't name them today like right. they used no, to. They don't. <laughs> Those are some crazy names. Yeah. And uh, Irenaeus ta taught Hippolytus. There's another one for you. There it is. Um, it's going to be the name of my first song. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, and that only gets you up so far to, you know, to so many years. Um, 
and then he but looked the, at... But those, mm-hmm. the, the idea behind this is that those people are writing things about yes. this. Yes. And what they're writing right. matches... Uh, not only not only the the it matches the fragments right. that we have that are earlier mm-hmm. than this Codex Sinaiticus, mm-hmm. but also it matches the the Codex Sinaiticus. Yeah. That, that and a lot of these guys the, in their writings when they're writing their sermons or whatever they're quoting scripture, right? And right. so they'll have big scripture quotes throughout. And so when you take all of these guys and add them all up, you basically have almost the entire twenty seven you know New wow. Testament books that we have, and and it go, and it literally like when you go up to um, you know it goes through Paul's disciples and then Peter's disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter's disciples are the ones that can get you like right up next door to mm-hmm. three fifty or three sixty, yeah. and and you can see that through all of that, the story never changed. Mm-hmm. So it's consistent. Mm-hmm. So so the writings of the the writings of the disciples is consistent with what their disciples were talking about yep. and writing and quoting, mm-hmm. which is consistent with. The fragments that we have that are very early, right. which is consistent with the full codex. Correct. Mm-hmm. That, the first full codex that we have, right? Correct. Which is amazing that that, that gap, um, it's only 350 years roughly uh, from the time of the events to when it was actually written. Yeah, which in terms of ancient history is so, not long. We're going to talk about right. that in a second. And we'll talk about but, that. But yeah. But the fact that then all of that middle section is covered for by disciples of the disciples right. of the disciples and is fragments. impressive. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. So were they there? Can the testimony be corroborated? And mm-hmm. did the story stay consistent over time? Right. Three things that are very important to, to answer when you're talking about someone who's claiming to have seen something mm-hmm. and if if their testimony is true. Right. That that all is answered in the affirmative for, for the Christian case, right? So, yep. so then the last one, which I think this would probably be considered more circumstantial, mm-hmm. but I think it's really important. The last question is: Did they have an incentive to falsify right. this? Right? Um, uh, was there was there a motive or a mm-hmm. reason or a prejudice? Right. And so, what, what are you know when you think about that? Typically, when people lie, <laughs> what is it that they're trying to gain? Exactly. Yeah. And and as a former cop, he's like, I've seen it all, and he mm-hmm. said, I I can boil it down that. It's not just sin, but it's three motives behind all crimes. It's financial greed. I'm going to get some sort of financial gain. Mm -hmm. There's either relational or sexual desires and the pursuit of power. Money, sex, and power. Yep. And he said, now, lots of people will say, you know, disrespect or whatever, but he said, those are subsets under these sure. three main yeah. things. Disrespect is a is a an attack on someone's power. So right. it always mm-hmm. falls into those categories for the most part. Yeah. And, sure. and no matter what you can come up with, he's like, it always seems to boil mm-hmm. down to this at all. So, so let's talk about those things. Yeah. yeah. So he said, did any of the New Testament writers have any of these motives? Uh, well, we know from not only from themselves, but from uh, church history and then other outside the church um, uh, documents as well as, you know, like the Thallus and, and those people, uh, Josephus, nobody ever reported that they became rich. <laughs> None of them were wealthy mm. and made any kind of money at all. They it's the were opposite. Pretty, pretty poor and destitute most of their lives. Mm. Yeah, one of the Roman critiques of early Christianity was that it was the, the uh, religious belief of women and slaves. Right. 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 So, right. so, and then, and then you think about what happened because, like Jackie said earlier, these were people in the synagogue. These, yeah. these, mm-hmm. were, these were Jews. Mm-hmm. And so, what happened when they started claiming the Messiah? Right. Uh, and the Jewish leaders said right. that it wasn't right. true. What happened to them? Right. They, they were cast out of the synagogue. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we have to remember that that 
you know, the, the Jewish people were, were under oppression already, right. already poor. Right. Their main system of support was the synagogue. Mm-hmm. So it's not like today. There's yep. not government programs. Right. There's not the type of safety net that we have. Yep. There's much more desperate poverty. Mm-hmm. And then you get cast out of your support system, the synagogue. Right. Uh, and so uh, I would say, is there financial gain from this? It's definitely the opposite. Yeah, there's clearly a, a loss. You know, it, 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 it begs the question, then why do it? Right. Right, if exactly. it's not true. You, you also see some stuff in the scriptures, like uh, like in Acts, Paul is begging the church in, in Macedonia mm-hmm. to give him money to take back to the to Jerusalem, right. Right. which is the center of the church, mm-hmm. because Jerusalem has become desperately poor, the Jerusalem church, mm-hmm. the Christian followers in, in Jerusalem. So you, you do you see even the opposite in terms of like the financial gain. Right. That's, al- that's always been like a silly argument to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even today, like that argument with like pastors right. and stuff, it's like there, there might be like a few who can kind of get rich from like a prosperity gospel thing. Mm-hmm. But like, I know a lot of pastors, I know a lot of church world, <laughs> not, not a lot of rich people in there. Nope. <laughs> uh, and so at the time, historically speaking, yeah. um, it seems like there definitely was not financial incentive to mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. Nope. So then the second one. Well, some of, of the uh, apostles, disciples, New Testament writers, they had wives but there were never any sexual scandals ever that nobody ever brought forth. N- nobody said, hey, you know, that this person had, you know, all these affairs when they were overseas or whatever. It, there was nothing like that at all. There was no reports. Um, and of course, power, well, that's probably going to be the one that most people were, are well, going to want to jump well, onto. I think, I think we should just stop on the sex thing real quick because... Okay. I would actually argue that sexual discipline defined the early church. Yeah, but yeah, this seems, I was going to say on yeah. the contrary, mm-hmm. Paul's admonishing to a lot of the early churches, his letters are mm-hmm. like, hey, there's a guy in your congregation that's right. having, you know, uh, you know, he, he's in sexual relation with a woman he shouldn't be, mm-hmm. and you should admonish him. Right. And so it seems to be, again, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. There's, there's outside, you know, Roman sources that, that defined the first and second century church or mm-hmm. somewhere in there where they, where they said, you know, there's a couple things that define them. Right. And they talk about their weird gatherings, mm-hmm. the fact that they claimed they were eating someone's flesh and blood. <laughs> right. And then they talked about the fact that they were incredibly sexually disciplined, right? And, uh, you know, th- this, this was, that was such a strong aspect of the early church that it is today what is controversial in the church, mm. right? Sorry. Especially post-sexual revolution right. in, in the West, is like, what do people say about the church? Well, the mm-hmm. church talks a lot about who you are and who you aren't allowed to have sex with. And in terms right. of culture, that's inappropriate. Mm-hmm. But why does the church do it? Well, one of the reasons is because of you know the, the tradition that it comes from. And so that's always been yeah. the thing. Now, now, people can, on individual bases, you know, abuse their positions of power to, to gain something like sex, but uh, it certainly seems like that was the opposite of the way that the early church was defined. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the, so there's money, no. Mm-hmm. Sex, no. Uh, and so the last one's power. Right. And this is the Dan Brown thing. Right. Okay, right. yeah, did you want to... Right. We don't have to go into canonization yet, right, but just, right. you know, Dan Brown wrote a book called The Da Vinci Code, mm-hmm. and the idea is kind of like, how did the Bible come to be? Mm-hmm. And his theory seems to be something along the lines of there were, you know, bearded men in rooms who... <laughs> We're sitting by the candlelight deciding which books got in and which books didn't get in, all that kind of stuff, in order to gain and maintain power for themselves, right? right? This is a, 
incredibly powerful critique in our world because of critical theory, right? which is a way that we analyze the world, and it's very popular in academics and, and university. And so most people, I think, uh, most, most people's instinct mm-hmm. is that if they lied about it, it was probably for, for power. Right. Right. So, 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 so what do we find when we look at that? Well, I mean, the, the church really was not in power until probably 313 AD. Because if, if you've done any reading on church history at all, um, that's when mm-hmm. Constantine basically, quote unquote, converted, right. although he still worked, worshipped a lot of his uh, pagan gods after the fact. Um, he really wanted to bring unity to the empire. And so he felt like bringing that in. So that's when, uh, you know, Christianity to be the main religion of the Roman Empire. So when he did that, that's when they came into power. But prior to that, prior to 313, no. Mm-hmm. The, the church was persecuted. And 64 AD, like we mentioned earlier, was only one of many things. There was one church historian that I read that some of the um, persecution and things that were done to Christians, he says, I can't even put it in print. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just that gross. Yeah. And so, no, they never experienced any kind of real power until well into the 300s. Yeah, the persecution was to the point where, uh, because Christians believed in the resurrection, mm-hmm. they had a certain amount of like peace mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with uh, being executed that right. most people didn't have. Right. And uh, it got to the point where the Roman Empire got tired of mm-hmm. killing them right. because it was boring. Yeah, right. But, but what that shows you is that there's a large sample size. Mm-hmm. For the empire to get bored with it, it means right. they must yeah. kill a lot of them, a right? A lot of them, yeah. right. And so that doesn't sound like power to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have you have instances of people like Paul. Mm-hmm. He had power in his community. Right. He was a Pharisee. Right. He was like the, uh, he calls himself Pharisee of Pharisees. Mm-hmm. And he gave all of that up. Right. To be beaten, mm-hmm. rioted over, yep. left for dead, yep. excommunicated from his people, uh, imprisoned. Eventually, you know, dying yeah. in probably in prison. They think, uh, mm. and and so you know, I don't know. You you would have to tell me what kind of power right someone like Paul or Peter or James had when you look at the historical circumstances, right? right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so money, sex, and power. The right. the classic, um, you know, tale of the oldest time. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. would somebody make something up or do something? Uh, and create some kind of falsehood narrative that they want everybody to follow, uh, none of that really checks out here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So um, so, t- so that's that's testing the witnesses, right? Mm-hmm. The, those were the four. Were yep. they there? Uh, pretty good evidence that they were. Mm-hmm. Can a testimony be corroborated, corroborated by outside sources? Mm-hmm. Uh, much of it can be. Yeah. Much of the creed, when you were going through mm-hmm. the things that you can corroborate by these extra biblical sources, mm-hmm. right. uh, it's kind of like the Apostles' Creed, mm-hmm. right? A lot, a lot of yeah. the, the, yeah, the creed really can be. Um, did the story stay consistent over time? Mm-hmm. Which is actually a difficult thing to do, even when you're telling the truth. Yeah, and one thing I forgot to bring about, <laughs> about that is, is that a lot of these guys were spread out over several different, you know, regions, yeah. they weren't there to, you know, like they do the good cop, bad cop or whatever. They mm. split them up and they say, well, your buddy just said in, in right, his right, interrogation, right. he right. just ratted out on you. They, they had no way to make sure that they were all telling the same story to keep it all straight. They, mm. But they still told the okay. same story. Yeah, they were dispersed all across the, right. the ancient Near East and right. in Europe and all the way mm-hmm. to India. And, you know, they, they were yep. all over the place with no real central... Right. 
organization and without the technology to be able to communicate exactly. with a central organization mm -hmm. if they had it. Right. And yet you have this consistency of story. And then the last one is the incentives to falsify. Right. And it seems like in terms of your classic examples of money, sex, and power, mm -hmm. uh, not only is it not there, it's actually the opposite. Mm -hmm. Right. They became poorer. Mm-hmm. Uh, less sex, right. <laughs> or at least more disciplined right. sex. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you know, mm -hmm. sexual life, mm -hmm. and then um, less power. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, until you get to much later, right, in in mm -hmm. the history of the empire and the spread. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of like one of the the reasons I like that Jay Warner Wallace right. thing is because it's intuitive for people. Yeah, because you can you can imagine what we're talking about as you watch a true crime podcast. Mm -hmm. You know the the. Uh, podcast serial mm -hmm. took the nation by storm. Right. And why? Well, because you get to sit there and you get to act like you're a detective right. as mm -hmm. they give you information. Right. And it's fun. Yeah. And there's something intuitive about, mm -hmm. you know, how you analyze that stuff. And that's what Jay Warner Wallace is talking about with mm -hmm. as cold case detectives. They actually do that, although they're better at it than you and I are sure. listening to a podcast. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, but still, uh, he, he lays this out in terms of should you believe the Gospels mm -hmm. and should mm -hmm. you believe the Bible. Right. And it's, uh, it's very compelling. Yeah, absolutely. So his conclusion is, yeah, they passed the four tests. They're reliable witnesses. So you should listen to what they say. Now, He again, could convict if this was a crime. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, is it a slam dunk? Is it 100%? No, of course not. It's still their testimony. But he says they're reliable. They're not unreliable. You can trust what they say because they passed these four tests. Yeah. So, so we're, uh, well, I think maybe the last thing that I want to talk about in mm -hmm. terms of why we should believe the Bible mm -hmm. is I want to talk a little bit about manuscript evidence. Sure. And that sounds like a boring topic, <laughs> except uh, the idea is, you know, th this gets right at the heart of why should we believe this? Mm -hmm. It's an ancient document. We don't have any of the originals. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And Correct. so when people hear that, it makes them say, okay, that makes me feel like this might not be true then. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. don't have the original, right. the, the letter that Paul wrote, mm -hmm. or actually a scribe, which we didn't get into, but mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. uh, the, Paul's scribe wrote. Right. right? Uh, we don't have that letter, so how do we know this is the real thing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so a good way to contextualize this is to compare it against other ancient documents mm -hmm. that we do tend to quote like we believe that right. we can gain history from them. Mm -hmm. So so let's talk about some of the stuff that, that we have and how it compares to the Bible. Yeah, it's it's a, a study called textual criticism. Basically, it just examines a number of copies of early manuscripts that are available to us, and it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. So the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are means the less doubt we have about, you know, the original text themselves, mm -hmm. you, you know, because... We don't have originals of pretty much anything in ancient history. I, I, I think there's, I, I qualify that because as soon as I say, yeah, we don't have any, then somebody will say, yeah, we got this. Uh, <laughs> but I think for the most part, I'm pretty pa sure. Paper's that, not very durable. Right. And, and even papyrus okay. is True. Not yeah, durable, papyrus right? or, you know, whatever so, they so were writing. There's on. wars, there's famine, yep. there's, mm -hmm. there's fires, there's yeah. climate, yeah. right? Yeah. Whether it's humid or dry. A, yeah. a, mm -hmm. a city just gets demolished, mm -hmm. gets rebuilt. Mm -hmm. You know, like a right. lot of that stuff gets lost. Right. So what the textual critics have done is they, they look at uh, writings that we accept and that are used in universities that we quote from, that's no big deal, and then compare it to what we have for the New Testament documents. Mm -hmm. um, so Herodotus and Thucydides, I 
think I got those guys' names right. They're, they're some of those more tricky uh, names. Sounds right. They wrote in the 5th century BC, but the earliest manuscripts that we have from them are from 900 AD with basically saying that's a 1,300-year gap yeah. and only eight copies of their work. Hmm. That's it. So we have eight copies, mm -hmm. 900 year. And the earliest copy we have is 900 years after... Uh, 1300 years. 1300, 1300 yeah. years after the, after. after the events or after they were... Yeah, they were yeah after, they, after they were living, because they, they wrote in the 5th century yeah. BC, yeah. BC, and the yeah. first copy we have is 980, so yeah. you kind of have to skip over that. That's a 1300-year gap. Hmm. But, and, but we, we consider those, those mm -hmm. texts to be valid. Yeah, they have been used in universities and still are used for ancient um, you know, Near mm -hmm. East type settings and, and for understanding what was going on back then. So yeah. what, what about like um, something like Plato? Yeah, Plato's next on the list, actually. Um, we have a 1,200-year gap from when Plato was writing to the first copy of, his, of any manuscripts, and we, wow. only have, and we only have seven. We have seven total copies. Mm -hmm. And the earliest is, did you say 1,300 again? 12. 1,200. 1200. I'm, I'm kind of going down. The, this was the worst, and I'm, they're, they're okay. getting smaller. So, but mm -hmm. so the reason that this is important is because uh, if you went to a liberal arts university, mm -hmm. you probably had to take a philosophy class. And if yeah. you your, your introductory philosophy class probably had to do with Plato. Mm -hmm. I don't remember any professor ever talking about this. No. Then I went into a Bible class, and one of the first things that was brought right. up was <laughs> this kind of stuff, right? Exactly. Okay. Right. Exactly. And obviously, the works of Plato and Socrates are still... Uh, talked about, still studied, highly regarded. I mean, right? It, yeah, and yet there's a nobody, you know, even doubts if Plato existed. Right. That's just not a thing. You know, it's like no, he he was there. He taught Aristotle, and Aristotle is you know also a very well known philosopher, and we still quote regularly from both of them. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And okay. but we only have seven copies. Seven of copies. Their works. All right. With a 1,200 year gap. Yep. Now, next, we have uh, the historian Tacitus. We talked about him earlier. Uh, he wrote his work, uh, the most famous of his works, the Annals, in the late first century. And there's a thousand-year gap from the first copy that we have of his manuscripts, and we only have 20 copies okay. of his work. Okay. Uh, Caesar's Gaelic War has a 950-year gap with approximately 10 copies. Mm. Okay. Then you move to Livy's Roman History. There's a 900-year gap between from when he wrote to our first copy that we have, and we only have about 20 copies. Okay. Pliny's work, who's also a, an ancient historian, has a 750-year gap with only seven copies. Hmm. And then finally, we have Homer's work, which we know from the Iliad and the Odyssey. That's still talked about that's today. That's high school standard. That's, that, <laughs> that is so, there's a 500-year gap between when Homer was writing and when we have the first manuscript. And he clocks in at the best out of all of them with 643 copies wow. of his manuscripts. Hmm. Which Homer was kind of the central, uh, you know, the, those documents were kind mm -hmm. of like at the center of, right. of Roman life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew them. If if some so if something even just if something was going to be yeah you know uh, um, held mm -hmm. and preserved. Oh yeah. It would be that. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Sure. Um, okay. So so we're talking you know single digit copies of a lot of these. Mm -hmm. uh, somewhere between you know the best is like 500 years after they were supposedly written. Mm -hmm. But most it seems like most consistently something like 800 to 1200 years after right. these ancient documents were written that's that's the earliest manuscripts that we have yep. mm -hmm. and it tends to be something like 
single digits to mm-hmm. 20 right. of these manuscripts that we yeah. have at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then what, how does that compare to the Bible? Because, so, because yeah. that, what that tells me is that uh-huh. this is what's normal in terms of ancient literature. Exactly. This yeah. is the type of pattern you see in terms of how Yeah, it's this preserved. is not us disproving right, no, Homer. It's just, right, no, this it's is not. Just, it's just saying this is, this is just what it is. What was available at the time mm-hmm. and what's normal yeah. to have remain. Right, and and nobody, you know, no historian puts any doubt on this and says, "Well, well you know, we got ten copies. Well, that's terrible." No, they don't. They don't do that. Like, so I would great. Ex- they're like, "That's pretty good." <laughs> I would expect to see the same thing then mm-hmm. with something like the Bible, right? You would think, but no, it's not even close. What is it? Not even close. So as we said about the dating of the New Testament, so we've got New Testament documents that range from anywhere from forty-five was probably one of the first written. Uh, one's probably James, maybe Galatians, uh, real early on. Mm. And if we want to be gracious and say 90 to 100 AD, even though we just went over, there's yeah. probably sure. no way that it could be written, written. after 70. Sure. Let's just be gracious and say up to 100 AD, because uh, sometimes John has put it like 90 um, in Revelation as well. So we have the, some of the earliest copies from even just partial copies, so like little fragments to maybe partial books, um, at 130 years after those letters were written, to what we mentioned earlier, the Synactus, uh, code, uh, the Codex, yeah, the Codex, uh, at the which is the full thing, which is at 350 AD. Mm. So that's what 170 to 450 year gap. Mm. Compared, compared to the, the 1,200 year gaps we're talking exactly. about the other things. And the best was 500 with Homer. Right. So mm-hmm. at worst, the New Testament documents are right about there, maybe a little less, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not, not as much. And then the manuscript count, this is where it really comes in to, to focus. Of, you know, like you said, anywhere from, what, seven to 20 copies. The manuscript count for the New Testament in Greek alone, 5,800 Wow. 5,800 Greek copies. Greek copies. That's just in Greek. That are in this time frame. Yep. That is correct. As opposed to like eight. Right. For a lot of these other sources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's and it seems to be, you know, within 150 mm-hmm. to 300 years. Correct. Mm-hmm. Post post the, the time frame we're talking about, right? Yeah, the hundred yeah, 170 to maybe 450 tops, depending on how, you know what kind of time frame gap that we're talking. Yeah. What, what if uh, what if you take other languages into account besides Greek? Well, in uh, Latin translations that we have, uh, including the Old Testament as well, because the uh, Old Testament was translated into Greek, but if we also just talk about the uh, New Testament, we've got about 10,000 Latin manuscripts. 10,000 Latin manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And then there's some other languages, just random languages. Coptic and stuff like that, yeah. 9,300. Other other languages. This is around 25,000 copies Mm -hmm. of this. Yep. And this is uh so 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 this is the worst argument of all. Yes. When people try to disprove the Bible with this. Right. So all of these are actually bad arguments when mm-hmm, you when you look mm-hmm. at the evidence. But this is the worst one of all. Absolutely. Right. And it also explains uh, someone like Bart Ehrman mm-hmm. talks about the uh, the manuscript differences, like mm-hmm. like there'll be a different word here, right. a different word there. And he'll talk about how many thousands of differences there are in right. these as if like mm-hmm. to prove. And it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, because if there was eight right manuscripts that we mm-hmm. have, there'd mm-hmm. be a lot less differences. Right. But there's not. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. 25,000. Yes. Or however many, you know, however many right. thousand. And so there's, there is more mm-hmm. of this like textual variance. Right. 
Um, but then, you know, in the footnotes of his book, he says mm -hmm. that no core tenets of the Christian faith right. are actually changed by any of these variants. Exactly. Even though he's made a career off of right. talking about them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter that there's right. those variants. But the reason that they're there is because there's such a rich history of this compared mm -hmm. to these other ancient documents. Like you said, sure. we don't have something like this. No. We don't have anything from the ancient world mm -mm. that can be dated as early as this. Right. And we don't have anything at all, mm -hmm. even close, that can have the quantity of manuscripts right. yeah. that we have to, to look at and to deal with and to compare and contrast right. and understand right. um, what the original mm -hmm. was saying. Because um, in terms of textual criticism, mm -hmm. you can look at the more quantity of manuscripts you have, right. the better able you are to reconstruct mm -hmm. the original. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right? Because yeah. you can see where someone changed exactly. stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And right. so they equivocate a lot of times with the phrase uh, variant and error. Right. And right. You don't let them, you know, hoodwink you. That, that's not, they're not the same. They're not mm -hmm. the same thing. Okay. And so, sure, there are a lot of variants, but these things are like misspellings uh, or word order. Word order. Which in Greek is different than English word order. Exactly. change the meaning of a sentence. Yeah, exactly. Or in some instances, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord, or he. Christ <laughs> You know, Jesus. or yeah, Christ. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And, and those are variants. Those are differences. Well, sure. what, what is that? That doesn't do anything. The overwhelming majority are things like that. Right. There's mm -hmm. only like a real small percentage of disputable and we all know them because they're, if you've ever looked at any study Bible ever in the footnotes, you'll see that they're called out. Yeah. So like the yeah. um, woman caught in adultery in John 8 or yes. the ending of Mark 16. We all know about it. It's not, nobody's suppressing this. Right, nobody's trying right, to hide right. it. We're like, these aren't in the best uh, tested, oldest manuscripts, but we put it in there anyway because there are in some other ones. And the Bible so, footnotes that stuff and talks about that stuff. Oh, it's not, yeah, like sure, you said, it's not yeah. hiding it. Absolutely. But so, it still doesn't so, change any basic theology, like you said. So when we, so so Jackie, we just talked for an hour and 20 minutes about. Yes. Well, first we talked about my sweater, so maybe well, an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. About um, <laughs> the, you know, uh, making an apologia, apologia mm. about. Mm -hmm about the biblical documents that we have. Yeah. And so, um, you know, one, one of the reasons that I like to, to talk to you about this kind of stuff is because you are around, you know, young Christians sure. who uh, have varying degrees of, like, you know, faith and trust and skepticism and all that. So, sure. so what, what does this make you think about in terms of, like, some of the, the people that you know and yeah. just, like, you know, what, what do you take from all this? Uh, you know, I think that without realizing it, you know, young people, and, and I'll, I'll put myself in there, you know, the younger generation that maybe has come to adulthood in the last five years. Um, I, th I think the misconception about the Bible is that just some guy made it up for some reason, mm -hmm. right? Or mm -hmm. multiple people made it up for some reason. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I get that, like, that sounds like something that I wouldn't want to believe if that was true, but it just isn't, it's not true. And, mm -hmm. and you know, one of the most powerful things um, I, I've seen for, you know, uh, the small group that my husband and I lead uh, of college students was a lot of them went to Passion 2022, where they gave an apologetic speech much like this one. And mm. a lot of those young people walked away saying, you know, I had no idea. I thought <laughs> I just had to believe the Bible, even though it really didn't line up with like historically what was probably going on. Mm. On the contrary, the Bible is one of the best, you know, historical mm 
you know, documents of its time because of just the sheer volume, like you've said. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it, it not only strengthens like the idea that this is valid, mm -hmm. but I think it dispels that like thought in the back of our mind that maybe like what I'm believing doesn't really make sense. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think, again, we have this false sense of faith that it's supposed to be like contrary to, mm. you know, historical evidence or what's true. And we're just believing anyways, mm. but faith is not a lie. Mm -hmm. It's true. Mm -hmm. You know, the, and I think there's a lot of things that we have to trust God that we don't get the answers for, but I think we've got a lot of answers here that God's graciously given us. And so, yeah, for young people, I think that's that's the struggle is yeah. is to to dig deep because I think that like we we bring that presupposition to the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, I'm going to be a little bit combative here for a second. <laughs> okay, but the reason that young people grow up thinking that is because people are telling them that. Yeah. Oh, sure. Right. Hmm. And so you know one of one of the things that I care about the reason that, that that Sean and I have worked a lot in terms of apologetics in this church over the last year is because that means that we need to tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, people are telling them that this stuff is made up, and so I guess you can have faith if you want. But <laughs> just know that, like, yes. most of this stuff yeah. is not... It's not real. It was put together in a shady... You know you know how people do stuff for power and money and sex? Yeah. It's the same thing like this. The stuff that we have, we don't even have any of the originals. It's all much later. And none of that's contextualized. None of that's sure. explained. And so we have to, you know, be on the forefront of... Of uh, removing those barriers, yeah. you know, because because next week, Jackie, we're going to talk about the Book of Jonah, mm. and we're going to get into some just like, in my opinion, like thrilling theological mm -hmm. truths that are in there. People need to hear that. Absolutely. They need to like know that. They need to engage with that. And so, if this kind of stuff, you know, the what I'll just like I said, combatively call if the lies that you've been told about the Bible being unreliable because of all these different reasons that people will hint at but never really explain, uh, th then, then you need to deconstruct that so sure. that you can get into the way that the Bible can actually get into your heart and soul and change you and transform you. Absolutely. You know, yeah. it's one thing to have barriers to that. It's another thing to have barriers that, that are not good and that not don't intelligent hold up. and don't yeah. hold up. If you're, if you're resisting the Bible because of any of the things that we talked about today— then you you need to to you know if this doesn't convince you, then you need to look into it further so that you can take this book that we claim is like the the water of life, yeah, and 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 actually engage with it, yeah, come to know Christ, and uh, and 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 as as Christ Himself says, and, and truly live, yeah, you know, um, in terms of like arguing with people who don't believe this stuff. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's usually very fruitful, but one thing that is fruitful is because you have these kinds of facts on your side. When someone when someone does, you know, bring something like this to the table, ask them to go into it. When someone sure. says, "Well, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, the, if they say something about like the Da Vinci Code or Dan Brown or whatever, like people were, you know, picked this these books and they did these things in order to gain power," say, "Well, what do you mean?" Sure. Yeah. H how? How did they gain power from it? How did they gain money from it? How did, you know, well, the man, you know, we don't have any of the original copies. Okay, well, so do you, do you, what do you think about all the other ancient documents that we have? Like, what's your opinion on that stuff? Sure. And you just kind of make them talk about it because, you know, one of the things that, that my dive into apologetics has really brought forth in me and made me passionate about is that uh, most things like this in terms of apologetics, 
that keep people away from the Bible are simply cultural quips and phrases yeah. that you hear that then almost like osmosis get implanted into your yeah, brain. They're almost so like shocking that you're like, well, if they're claiming that, that has to be true. And so I believe that as well. Yeah. But, you know, most people saying this, you know, of a, of a, you know, they're not doing this to be deceitful. They don't know that this isn't true. It's just what they've been told. And so, you know, they're trusting that they've done the research. Right. Someone who told them did the research. Right. And it just becomes a snowball of a presupposition that. Yeah. Never has, you know, a foundation. Somebody who's been profoundly affected by Bart Ehrman's, you know, stuff on textual variants and stuff. And then you just, if you actually get to have a conversation with them and say, okay, well, what do you make of the fact that he says none of that actually matters? They're going to be like, well, what the heck do you mean none of it matters? Like, this guy's famous. He sells books. I read this, you know, 500-page book about all the textual variants. You're like, yeah, but one of the footnotes says that none of the core tenets of the Christian faith change because Mm -hmm. of this. And it, they don't know that, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, because because again, a lot of the stuff we believe has to do with slogans and the, mm-hmm. the cultural stream that we're in. And we certainly live in a time in the West where you know skepticism towards something like the Bible is is the the stream that we swim in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a shame because when you get into it, it doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what right. a lot of people believe about the Bible, in terms of it being unreliable in terms of it not being eyewitness testimony, in terms of us not having the information that we need, and in terms of there being, you know, what I call funny business going on mm-hmm. in terms of what we have, you know, in the way that a, a, a detective would look at it, it's not true. Yeah. Right. Right. Can I add one thing about Please. Bart Ehrman? So something that I would ask if somebody says, oh, Bart Ehrman, he's great. Okay. Well, he went to Princeton, mm-hmm. and he studied to get his Ph.D., under Bruce Metzger, who was considered the 20th century uh, textual critic, I mean, New Testament scholar. And he still fondly refers to him in his books, you know, and uh, dedicated one of his books to uh, Bruce Metzger. So they have the exact same evidence. They have the exact same manuscript, you know, evidence, copies, whatever. Mm. They have all these same teachings and all this, and yet Bart goes this way and... Metzger stayed the course, and, mm. and you'd have to ask why. Mm. That That's something that you have to think. They have the exact same pedigree. Mm-hmm. What, what What's the difference? Mm. I think it was because Bart had a similar sort of thing that Jay Warner Wallace had, but he didn't take it out of the way. He felt like he saw a mistake, or what he thought was a mistake, and thought the Bible can't have any mistakes at all. And so he rejected the whole thing. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, Sean, I appreciate it. Appreciate you being here, lending yeah. your your knowledge, Thank and you for your me. wisdom to this. You're very welcome. Um, we'll we'll probably have you back on at some point because good. Sean's not just an, an apologist. Sean's mm-hmm. a, a Bible nerd too. So yeah. <laughs> so we'll get him in here to talk about some stuff. Awesome. Uh, but but you know, today hopefully for for the people who have stuck around all the way to the end, <laughs> you know, the, the the point of this is to kind of clear the way mm-hmm. so that we can get into the scriptures. Right. You know, yeah. we're we're going to get into the Bible next week and then you know, for the indefinite future. We're going to be reading through the Bible. Yeah. And so, you know, we want people to come to this with the ability to to read it and to understand it and to be transformed by it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of this kind of stuff that we talked about today that, that stands in people's way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to. Right. And so hopefully this episode kind of cleared the way for us to be able to, to, to get into the Scriptures. And uh, so... 
Unless anybody has anything else, you guys mm. good? This has been beautiful. Thank you so much. All right. Well, we, we appreciate it, Sean. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we will see you next week on Story Symbol Spirit. Mm-hmm.